Welcome to Start HBS Podcast, a conversation between Harvard Business School students and folks who have been on audacious journeys starting meaningful ventures. We're your hosts, Alex Spencer and Bryce DeFigurito, students at the Harvard Business School. Our guest today is Matt Oppenheimer, co-founder and CEO of Remitly. Remitly is the largest digital remittances company in the world. Matt is a member of the Harvard Business School class of 2009. We're super fortunate to have Matt on our podcast. He's a thoughtful and humble business leader who wears his passion for impact on his sleeve. Remitly transforms the lives of immigrants and their families by providing financial services for folks looking to send money back to their home countries. Quick note to folks who may not be familiar with HBS lingo, you'll hear us refer to RCs and ECs. RC stands for first year MBA students and EC stands for second year students. Enjoy the conversation. So we're just getting started with the semester. A lot of RCs and ECs are going to be listening to this podcast. So, um, you know, what advice would you have maybe with respect to connecting with your section or, or things you might have learned from section mates or, or people with, with maybe a 10-year perspective looking back? Yeah, it's a good, good question. Um, <clears throat> amazing. It's been 10 years. That also flies by. Uh, I think that, uh, I mean, the RC here is obviously just totally about the section experience and um, advice I'd have is, yeah, just spend as much time as you can with people you care about within that section and obviously groups within that um, group of 90 form uh, and that's natural. And I think that trying to get rid of, do people still talk about like FOMO? Fear of missing oh, yeah. out? And like, there's a million things you can do. And I think that the, at the end of the day, you'll have a bunch of, contacts of people that you'll stay in touch with and people that you that you'll know and I can give you some anecdotes and examples um, related to that but then at the end of the day you'll have five or ten hopefully really close friends for me that came from section RC year um, and we get together once a year um, I ended up living on the same street in Seattle randomly as uh, a couple of section mates that ended up getting married they were both in section wow. and I stay in really close touch with them and so I think that uh, it's all about that, the RC, the RC year. And then the EC year is cool because you get to totally choose what you want to do. I wrote a case. I uh, um, in um, what Does Bill George still teach there? I don't know. Uh, forgetting the name of the, I'm forgetting the name of the class. What's that? Um, he, he started a class that I'm forgetting the name of now, which is embarrassing, but it was all about going deep and really, you know, um, deciding what, each student wants to do with their life and, and where purpose is and, and what matters. And so I had the honor of having Dean Noria. He was not Dean at the time. He was a professor as my professor in that class and got to know him uh, via that class. And as I was thinking about what job to take, I knew I wanted to do general management. I knew I wanted to do something international. And when I was looking at my different options, I went to him and said, Hey, listen, there's this Barclays opportunity, not in the investment bank in the corporate and retail bank. And it was the opportunity to, be part of their like MBA uh, general management rotational program. And he said, Matt, if you take that job. London is international. It's different. It's a new experience. But I told him the reason I was really excited about Barclays was because I had done some volunteer work in Africa. Um, and Barclays at the time had a presence in 10 African countries. And he said, just do yourself a favor. It's going to be easy to stay in London, do the truly international experience and make sure you take a role in Africa while you're there. And then fast forward a year after I, I took the job, uh, I was in London and everybody in one Churchill place, which is where Barclays is headquartered, was like, 
you should like when I was thinking about going to Africa was like, how is that going to help you with your career? You're moving further away from the mothership. Like, what are you thinking? And I really did think back to Dean Noria's advice of being like, this is why I took this job and it's the road less traveled. But that road less traveled has been, at least for me, uh, an adventure of a lifetime, but one that has also been really um, rewarding professionally. That's awesome. Yeah, that's way cool. I love that idea of the road less traveled. Um, and then, so, so you go to, um, you go to Africa, you're working for Barclays. How does the idea of Remitly come up? Yeah, I was, uh, running mobile and internet banking for Barclays Bank Kenya. And that was another, how I got that role was also, um, uh, HBS related. Do you want me to explain that as well? Yeah, that'd be great. Cool. So, um, I, uh, was, um, when, when I did a few different tracks, I did a Japan track that was amazing, but the one I mentioned earlier around the East Africa track was really formative for me. Um, it was planned. You guys still do tracks, right? That are planned by HBS students from that country. So it's very genuine, yeah. authentic. Like, yeah, we've got country. one coming up to Mexico. That's about 200 people strong. So yeah, we still <laughs> <That's>, do tracks. <laughs> that one sounds fun. That one sounds awesome. And so I did a track uh, and the guy who planned it, I think he was one of the key planners, a guy named Joe Matugu. Um, uh, got to know him some through that. And uh, I also got to know, I think I met him during this trip, a guy named Aiden Mohamed, who was CEO of Barclays Bank Kenya. And he was also, uh, now I think he's a minister in, in the government, like a very senior, well-known Kenyan person. Both of those two individuals are HBS grads. Uh, so, um, went on the East Africa track, obviously did all the amazing adventure, you know, wilderness, wildlife, et cetera, but got a sense of what it would like to be there. Fast forward to when I was at Barclays and Bryce, going back to your question, after I joined the MBA rotational program, the program actually kind of like got a little less organized because the CEO who's the sponsor left and you kind of had to fend for yourself to figure out what roles to take. Um, and I very proactively for the reasons I mentioned pursued roles in Africa and it was HPS that led me back via the connections I made via the East Africa track. Joe was a year ahead. He had moved back. Um, and um, I believe, it, yeah, it, I believe it was Joe. Um, but anyway, both the chief of staff and the, um, and the, uh, and Aiden, the CEO of Barclays Bank Kenya were really my connections to Africa that, um, and to Kenya specifically, that basically, teed up this role where I was running mobile and internet banking initiatives for Barclays Bank Kenya. And when I saw in Kenya how difficult it was to send money internationally, when I saw in Kenya how um, people uh, domestically were using M-Pesa, which is a mobile wallet there, uh, to transform domestic financial services, it seemed like the right time, the right opportunity to, to disrupt the Western unions of the world that had been around for 150 plus years. And so that's where the idea really came from. Cool. Awesome. So... Did your perspective change a ton when you left this giant bank to basically start a startup in Africa? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I always knew I would start a company. I was, I'm not a technologist. Um, and so I think probably like some HBS folks, I wanted to find a business that um, I could add a lot of value to. Um, I liked starting a tech company. I think it's like the of the day to start a tech company but the reason i like technology was it can have an enormously scalable impact i was in my late 20s uh, when i started the company i knew i wanted to swing for the fences um and i think that what happened for me in kenya because i've been looking 
for a really the right company to start for a long time, but it had to be a company that I was going to commit 10 plus years of my life to. And for that to be the case, it needed to be really mission driven, really purposeful. And it needed to be a business where I could add value as not a product or technology lead. And um, that's what I found with remittances um, because there's a whole bunch of other compliance, legal banking, like partnerships. There's, there's all these things in a remittance business that make it really hard to get off the ground. And so I was lucky enough to partner with somebody who was a really strong chief product officer, but um, it was seeing that problem and that being a problem where I feel like uh, felt like, again, it was very mission driven and um, where I could actually add a, add a lot of value in the early days. And so made the leap and it was definitely a big transition from uh, a bank um, in some ways easier in some ways harder. Um, and I think that, uh, I thrive on change. I thrive on ambiguity. Um, I have a, I think a high degree of grit and tenacity, but it's not, it's, it's not, uh, glorious to start a business early days. I mean, I saw my job as CEO once I found the right product and product lead and engineering. Um, there were three co-founders. Um, I saw my entire job as basically to like get anything out of their way so they can build a phenomenal product for customers. And that entailed everything from taking out the trash to, getting state licenses to be a money transmitter to getting the right banking relationships to getting the right partners in the Philippines where we launched. Um, and it is, it's tough, but it's rewarding once you actually get that product out. And there's also a lot of humility that, that I think comes with, especially being the like business lead co-founder, because if you're doing your job in some ways, it's like all the stuff that nobody else wants to do. So the product and engineering folks can actually build stuff. So, you mentioned swinging for the fences. You're, you've started a company that is now the largest digital remittances company on the planet. Um, you've surpassed 800 people worldwide. You have offices in Nicaragua, London, Seattle. Am I missing anywhere else? <laughs> we have an office in, in Krakow, Poland now. In, um, we have an office in, uh, I don't know if you mentioned London, Spokane, Washington, we have a small office in now. So, and we have over a thousand people, but yeah, we've got an amazing team around the globe. So take me back to that point in a conversation you had with Dean Noria or, or maybe other pivotal points. Is this what you anticipated as your home run? Was this swinging for the fences? Cause I kind of get the feeling based on this conversation and, and others that we've had that, you know, there, there's a little bit more to Matt than just the outcomes. Yeah, for sure. I think that, um, so is this what, I think there's two parts to your question. The first is, is this where I thought it would be? I think this is where I hoped it would be. Um, but I'm a pretty rational guy. And statistically speaking, there was one of our board members who recently told us this, and this was after our series D, let alone our series E, and the scale and size we were at then. And he was like, you're in the 0.5% of venture backed companies. And so. Meaning the 0.5% of companies that had made it to that stage. Exactly. Yeah. And so I think that uh, I hoped that we would, but I rationally thought those early days, um, who knows, right? Like, statistically speaking, the problem was going to work out. I think that uh, the interesting thing building a company is those early days, I've been very, very fortunate to have an HBS education. I've been very fortunate to have, you know, built up a bit of a, um, 
uh, amount that, you know, I, I could take that risk. Uh, and I kind of was like, what's the worst that could happen? It doesn't work. Then very quickly start raising capital, start hiring employees. You start like building a business and there's a lot of stakeholders that really rely, relied on me. And so it wasn't actually the leap that right away that was the scariest. It was the like, okay, we can't fail. Like I've made promises to individuals and um, we, we're going to make this work. Um, and I think that grit and tenacity is probably the single most defining factor that's been helpful for us to be successful. It's not just me. It's our, my co-founders, all three of which are still with the company, which is rare eight years in it's the early employees we had and every employee along the way. Um, that's had that kind of grit and tenacity to your second question in terms of what matters. Yeah. I mean, we're very much mission driven. I had, uh, one of our investors say at one point, you know, we almost didn't invest because we thought you were too mission driven. And I was like, that is a very good compliment. Thank you very much. Um, and when I say mission driven, the cool thing about our business is we serve a very underserved demographic. Um, and we serve them in a time, if you think of our average customer being an immigrant from Philippines, Mexico, et cetera, where it's a pretty scary place to be in the U S or Europe or the countries that we serve. And so to be able to hold them up, honor them, provide them more reliable service, um, and, and, um, you know, obviously part of it, bring the cost down, but just be transparent about the fees and, and treat them with honor, respect, um, is something that's just total honor. And that is what nine, you know, eight, nine years in totally drives me because there's so few businesses where you can build a very, very large business, but also make just such a hugely positive impact because the Delta of their previous experience versus now and the importance of remittances to an immigrant's experience is just so huge that I get notes every day from customers um, wow. that are just so heartwarming. That's that's why we do what we do every day. That's cool. That's amazing. Yeah, I've heard that remittances eclipse foreign aid and proving um, like global wealth equality and giving people like, like upward mobility and things like that. Um, so that's like a pretty cool uh, mission. Wow. Um, like to connect that also to something else uh, we heard about you. So we heard you started some kind of organization in high school. Could you tell us about that? Is this like just a theme in your life? You're always just trying to change things and, um, and, and start like groups that will change stuff? Yeah, you guys did your homework. I like it. Yeah, I started the first organization I ever started was something called the Youth Lobbying Organization in Boise, Idaho. And what that was was um, initially it's a nonprofit and initially it was the purpose was to help people the un, under the age of 18 in Idaho have a uh, voice uh, and take stances on political issues that affected them and um, how old were you at the time I was like probably I think it was in high school probably like 15 16 because you can drive yeah. at 14 and a half in Idaho like all right I could drive I should probably start a nonprofit. <laughs> And it was actually super funny. The early days, we needed to get some momentum. And the Idaho Statesman, you probably know, Alex. Uh, oh, yeah. local I, I was a paper boy for the Statesman for a good three years. So Hey, there you go. <laughs> I like it. So everybody reads the Statesman in Boise, or at least everybody did. And uh, they came to me one day and they were like, hey, we heard you starting this lobbying organization. We want to do an article about it. I had done nothing for this lobbying organization. And I was like, yeah, sure. What do you want to talk about? It? And like between that conversation and then when I sat down with them, I got all the infrastructure set up, I laid out the vision of what we we're trying to accomplish. And then that article propelled us to get the publicity such that we got one representative from every high school in, in the state to come to the state house, be members of the youth lobbying organization. And we set it so two thirds majority had to be um, agree on an issue for people to take a stance. 
And just like adults, it turns out that people under the age of 18 also have, you know, varying political opinions. And so <laughs> we had awesome debates in a really collegial way, but it was much more of an educational thing where educational and people could express their own personal interests, but it didn't become a, hey, we're for this policy or that policy. It was the first time though a lot of students around a lot of small towns in Boise were able to come to the state house, meet with their representatives, tell them what mattered, and then also hear from some amazing people that supported us like um, Cecil Andrus came and spoke, um, who uh, relatively recently passed away, was a governor in Idaho, and it was just great exposure. So anyway, that was the first organization I started. And yeah, I did it because I thought it would make a you know positive impact in Idaho. Um, made a bunch of mistakes on that one. When I went to college, it didn't continue because I didn't think about succession planning, but it was a great first experience in high school. Interesting. How, how do you think 14 and a half, 15 year olds uh, Matt Oppenheimer would react to to the Matt of today? Hmm. I think uh, it's an interesting question. Nobody's ever asked me that question. I hope, you know, 14, 15 year old Matt uh, would be happy. Funny story though, when I, when I uh, think about 14 year old Matt Oppenheimer, we had this time capsule at Boise high school where you put, you know, something in there that is, uh, you know, that you pull out 15 years later, 20 years later. So I put something in the time capsule that was a video of myself talking to myself, giving myself advice. Like, oh and first of all, I'm wearing like a Baltimore Orioles t-shirt. I have like hookah shell necklace, whatever it is. And I <laughs> like a California accent. I'm like, oh, hey, Matt. It's like the most embarrassing video on the planet, which... I eventually had to play in a pawn shop because it was in one of those cameras that you have to like put the camera, put the video on the side of it. So everybody in that pawn shop got a good laugh. But I think what, what 14 or 15 year old Matt told me um, was like, just, you know, focus on what matters in life. Um, and uh, hopefully that's the thing. I mean, the pre that whatever the headlines are, are ultimately are less important than in my view, what we have at the end of, of life is like, relationships and the positive impact we've hopefully made. And I, I love remitly because of the platform it provides. Um, but ultimately I think life comes down to relationships and the impact we make in people's lives. So interesting. Take me to, I'm, I'll limit you to one. Can you choose, tell, tell me about one person who maybe had a big influence on you. What are some of the lessons that you've learned? What is it about that relationship that has, you know, helped you evolve over time or vice versa? Mark Solon. Uh, he is currently head of Techstars Ventures. Uh, he was head of Highway 12 Ventures, the only venture capital firm in Boise. I interned there after uh, my freshman year and I was entrepreneur in residence at Highway 12. When I started the company, I moved back to Boise from Kenya and that's where I got off the ground. Um, it, uh, Mark is the epitome of take the road less traveled. Like don't just do things because everybody else is doing them and challenge the status quo, especially around career decisions and big life decisions. And he was there when I was starting remitly in Kenya and I called him from the roof deck of where I lived and said, Hey, I'm thinking about this wild idea. And he was the most unabashedly like, go do it. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> and Mark has had a profound impact on my life and he's just a different human and he gives me different advice in a very positive way. Okay. 
Interesting. We all, we all need those cheerleaders at certain points in our life to give us a vantage point maybe we don't see and, and give us a little nudge. Yeah, you definitely take the road less traveled. I mean, I, I think, um, you know, some people may know, but Remitly just had some financing and you probably can't discuss, you know, the valuation, but I remember it was a big number, somewhere close to a billion dollars, um, at least as it was reported. <laughs> Um, and I, I remember, um, just thinking, you know, wow, what, what what an eight year overnight success, (laughs) (laughs) you know, from, from the, meaning from the vantage point of the Twitter verse in, in tech or something, it just seems like, oh my gosh, this company remitly came out of nowhere. And, but, you know, after having this conversation with you and hearing about some of your decision points, it's like at some point you know, you as an HBS grad uh, made the choice to go to a country with an economy the size of what, like $45 billion? <laughs> and, 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 you know, it, it, it just kind of these interesting career decisions that it's obviously very difficult to connect the dots looking forwards, but backwards, um, taking the road less traveled sure seems to, to pay off in the long run. Um, so, um, may, maybe some rapid fire questions here, uh, to, to wrap up. Could you tell us about a lesson that you had to learn the hard way? Uh, lesson I had to learn the hard way. Um, the biggest thing that comes to mind is what executives are needed at different scale and size of companies and how that changes very rapidly. And when I was, when I'm, when I say learn the hard way, I now very much seek to try to understand what those roles look like at a company double or triple our current size, um, which if you're doubling every year happens pretty fast. (laughs) And, uh, try to understand those blind spots so I can give feedback very actively uh, to my team if there's a stretch that they need to reach. And when I learned the hard way, I had blind spots, which was a failure as CEO because then I had surprise executives on my team once that gap was too big. And it was my job to kind of tell them that earlier so I could give them a shot at growing into what we needed at a certain scale and size. Interesting. So much I could pick apart on that, but one, one more rapid fire for you. What gives you energy in your day? Running. Playing with my one-year-old daughter. And sleeping. I love sleep. People that are like, oh, I need four hours of sleep. I'm like, I'm so jealous. I need like a solid eight hours to have good energy for the day. Um, Okay. So last thing that we generally ask is, so we're going to send this out. um, Obviously, it'll be published on the App Store but we'll send it out internally here. Um, are you guys hiring any interns or, or you know, any, anything that we can maybe like help promote? And anything like you want to plug? Yeah, anything we want to plug, yeah. Uh, yeah, we are. We do have internships for sure as well as full-time roles for um, MBA grads. Uh, and uh, we're at a fun scale and size where there's a lot of growth potential given how fast we're growing, but also you know, specialized roles. If someone wants to be a, you know, amazing product manager, an amazing business manager, et cetera, and roles around the globe for that. So uh, that's definitely a plug. Um, 
No, I, I, yeah, I'm doing, you know, less though it's appreciate the opportunity to do the plug, but um, yeah, it's more, don't the biggest thing I'd say to HBS folks is um, actually, no, I'm not going to be preaching and saying more stuff. No, no, please lay it on us, man. Come on. You got the perspective. <laughs> yeah. Just don't, don't, don't do what you think you should do and don't do what everybody else is doing. Can I tell you another funny story? Actually, sorry, I'm please. just bouncing around. This is the epitome of like, you're going to be embarrassed to know me now, Alex. But um, <laughs> Speaking of the road less traveled, I didn't think this was weird until hindsight. I had a handlebar mustache. I think my entire arsenal. <laughs> I had a huge handlebar mustache. And so there's this oh, exercise that we did, as, we did as RCs that somebody from my section just sent around. And it's like, it was like, hey, say something you respect about, uh, you know, this person in your class. And uh, like, I'm going to pull it up right now so I can tell you the actual quotes. But I'll pull it up later. Anyway, it was like half of my like nice comments about Matt were like, Amazing handlebar mustache. No one, no one wears his state pride better. No one. Uh, <laughs> all right. Well, I guess since I'm just so great at advice, my advice is grow a handlebar mustache. No, it's to like just. I I do care a lot what people think is the funny thing, and I think it's been car- part of my key to success. But for some reason, for some reason, HPS was like a. I I was able to get out of that um, and make some decisions in my life that were very countercultural and. I think that's been valuable. And I think to some extent, if you're at HBS, you have the ability to get people to like and respect you because that is a key part of business. And just knowing when to flex that muscle and knowing when to be like, I'm taking the road less traveled is super important. Awesome. Well, Matt, where can people find you? Matt at remitly.com. Okay. Noted. Mr. Oppenheimer, thank you so much for taking time. And we will blast this to every RC and EC at HBS, man. Seriously, thanks so much. We're going to have just like a groundswell of handlebar mustaches. (laughs) (laughs)